I joke about it, but I worry that he's going to wake up middle of the night and he thinks the alarm's going off. He's going to reach over that was easy. and push the button and we're going to have a nuclear war. Obviously, it's not that simple, but you get my point there, Donald. Listen, um, this is this is this is frightening if you think about it. Now, people aren't thinking about it because they're all virtuous and I stand with Ukraine. Let me paint some of the yellow and blue flag in here. Weird. Let's raise money for the Ukraine. Oh, Nancy Pelosi with a Ukraine US flag lapel pin. Where was that three months ago, Nancy? Where was that when you could have been sending javelins and stingers and armored personnel carriers and ammunition? Now, we're going to give them aid. Oh, now we have to pay for Joe Biden's policy failures. They want $32 billion, $10 billion for the Ukraine. They've already given them money. There may not be a Ukraine by the time the money is approved by Congress. This is this is insanity of the highest order. Hello, my name is Donald and welcome to the number one media company, Worldview. At Worldview, we explore everyone's perspectives on all things that come broad in our worldview. Today, we're chatting again with Colonel Chris Wyatt. Chris is a retired colonel in the U.S. Army. So, Chris, welcome back to the show. So, Ukraine, do you think it's possible that Putin underestimated Ukrainian forces and it will be very difficult to, for him to fully take control of Ukraine or just partially take over contr control of Ukraine and it might end up as is Afghanistan? Well, those are some really good questions, Donald. Thanks a lot. It's a pleasure to be back on the program. I see you guys have had some really impressive growth since the last time I came on. Uh, maybe I, I could take some credit for drawing your audience. No, I'm <laughs> just kidding. But but uh, you've done some great content. It's very professionally done. So thank you for inviting me back. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, that's a lot to unpack. Let me let me try to get it one by one. If I miss something, just remind me what I missed. But it did, did Putin underestimate the Ukraine? I think it's too early to make that conclusion. I think that Putin is willing to take some pretty serious losses. And also, you know, we were already hearing this narrative from the mainstream, lamestream, fake stream media within 48 hours. Well, the Russians are falling apart. They're, they, they, they're not advancing this, that, and the other. Well, that may be true, but the information being supplied by the open source media and by politicians doesn't draw one to make the conclusion. For instance, the fact that there's a 70 kilometer convoy of military vehicles sitting north of Kiev, which hasn't advanced, doesn't lead me to believe that they're trapped or they don't have logistics or they can't get across rivers and bridges. It leads me to take a look at what's going around, around in the broader context. And if you look to the east of there, you will see that the forces coming across the border had not advanced far enough to link up. And rather than having your forces advance in a blitzkrieg fashion, in which you have gaps and seams which could be exploited and attacked by guerrilla forces and drones and things like that, there is, in my view, likely be an effort to cut off Ukrainian forces that are in that northeastern corner, isolate them, encircle them, and then link up Russian forces before moving forward. So the, the, it may, in fact, not be uh, the Russians' inability to move towards Kiev, but rather their decision operationally to do a halt until their forces can be linked up. Uh, now, that may or may not be an accurate perception of what's going on, but I would make the same argument in the southeast below the Donbass. In the Donbass, they haven't gone very far at all. If you look at it, they haven't gained much territory where they already had control of the irredentist republics of Lukansk and Donetsk in the Donbass, and there hasn't been much advancement until this past 24 hours, eight days into it. But then you see an intentional effort by troops from the Crimea moving north, and then troops from the Donbass coming down to isolate Maripol, which is a critical crossing there and a strategic city, which is now surrounded. And uh, so, so you see forces trying to link up rather than create gaps. Now, the Germans in 1939, when they invaded Poland with three million troops, they had gaps, but they had follow on forces that filled those gaps. The Russians haven't got sufficient forces in place to fill those gaps with troops and follow on. So you have to have the advanced elements linking up 
and pushing the folks out in front of you. Also, as far as this whole thing within 72, now, by the way, I'm not carrying the water for Russia. I do think there are issues with their ability to pull off combined arms operations here, particularly with air support. And they failed in some respects in my view, but I don't think that Putin is in the words of a lot of these geniuses in the cable news network, he's angry and disappointed with the progress. There were reports that the Ukrainians had captured battle plans from a unit and in which it said that the, the battle plan was to go this direction, this direction, and they didn't expect to conquer Ukraine for 15 days. 15 days, I think, is still rather optimistic. The Nazis, with 3 million troops invading, and then the Soviets coming from the east with another 4 million or so, whatever their number was, it took them 17 days before the troops met. It was 30 days before they fully subdued Poland in 1939. So Ukraine, a far numerically inferior force over a larger geographic area, it seems to me that um, telling people that the Russians have failed in three, four, five, six, seven days is problematic. Now, that's not to say the Russians haven't taken some heavy losses. The Ukrainians are you know, famously putting any image up they can of Russian soldiers captured, of Russian vehicles destroyed. And we're seeing far fewer images of Ukrainian vehicles being destroyed, but they are being destroyed. I have seen some footage of Ukrainian tanks that were uh, incapacitated and, and, and demobilized around um, uh, Korshan. And so you, you got to be careful here. I suspect without knowing the intent that's inside of Vladimir Putin's head, which is the most difficult thing to determine as an intelligence analyst, that he had anticipated that they would probably bring Ukraine to heel within 30 days. That's my suspicion. Uh, now, what that cost will be may be something that's very interesting. It might be something that's uh, cost prohibitive at some point. But it's clear that to me that Putin on his visit to the Beijing Chaikom Winter Olympics had a conversation with Xi Jinping, and they agreed that Russia would have free hand to do what they're doing right now. And they signed a grain deal, they signed an oil deal, and also 13.8% of Russia's foreign currency reserves are in the yuan or the renminbi, which is the Chinese currency. So China clearly is a tacit supporter. They abstained in the General Assembly vote against condemning Russia, not a surprise. So that's a long answer, and that's the first question. So you had two more questions. <laughs> so I would say before, before you say that, I think it's being overblown. It's too early to tell. And, and I'm sorry, let me add one more thing to that. For those who've never been in a convoy or a military operation in which 100,000 troops are involved, 200,000, 300,000, in my case, 670,000 combat troops involved in military operations against Iraq in 1991, you've never seen 10,000, 100,000 vehicles on the battlefield moving all at once and trying to synchronize that movement. We moved at 10 kilometers per hour, even though we were kicking the Iraqis' tail. And they were running away faster than 10 kilometers per hour. Why? So we didn't get breaks and gaps in our formation. And so we didn't outrun our fuel source, which we did eventually. I was on the battlefield after fighting the Tawakana division in 1991, sitting there as a mortar round nearly took me out. I was outside my track wearing my headset, uh, trying to coordinate fires and, uh, and intelligence when a mortar round zipped right by me and blew up. And fortunately, I wasn't injured. Uh, thank goodness. Um, but um, we were sitting there. Because we had to hold our unit in position waiting for National Guardsmen from Pennsylvania, which is where I live now, so that's ironic, with their tanker trucks coming up who've been driving all night from sources, moving the full fjord. They came up and they refueled our tanks and armored personnel vehicles as we sat there with the engines idling. We never shut them down. And then the whole unit took off. Uh, so it takes a lot to conduct a military offensive, particularly one with 127,000, 200,000 troops. And it takes an awful lot more to coordinate disparate operational movements from the north, from the northeast, from the east, from the south, and the maritime operations. It's an incredibly complicated conflict. And I think people are oversimplifying things. So before you say Russia has failed or Russia's, Russia is, is losing, um, 
take a breath and realize that the Ukrainians are outmanned, they're outgunned, they're desperate, they're fighting for their lives, which is why Israel still exists, because uh, they fight for their lives every time. Maybe it's game over, it's game over for them. So Russia, I reserve judgment on their failures. I I'll criticize their operations. I got lots of things criticized. But anyway, that was the first question. That took a while, sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's very interesting. And it's, I, I'm grateful I asked you that question because you clarified a lot that, like you said, the mainstream media wouldn't be able to do. But um, Putin said that one of or two of the reasons why he invaded the Ukraine is because he feared NATO expansion and because the Ukrainian government has been... Um, reneging on their commitments to the, the Russian government, their debt obligations, or something like that. Do you think those are valid reasons? Because it seems somewhat lame, because as far as I know, NATO is a defensive alliance, not an offensive alliance. So why are you so scared of NATO? Two points. Number one, it's never legitimate to invade another country and, and kill people over debt. That's ludicrous. I mean, that's I haven't heard that that argument from Putin, although I've, people said he said it. I haven't heard directly. Of course, you know, I, I would be translation. I don't speak Russian, you know, but but if he made that argument, that's just juvenile and that's unacceptable in any international organization. It's not an international norm. So that's the first thing. So, I mean, we didn't invade uh, Weimar Germany when they couldn't pay their debts. You know, we, we rescheduled their debts. You know, it's that's you know, it's ludicrous. So the second one that's concerned about that NATO. First off, it's a red herring. And I said it's a red herring all along. If there were real journalists in the White House press room asking questions of Peppermint Patty, also known as Jen Psaki, we call her Jen Circleback, or asking questions of the Manchurian cadaver, also known as President Joe Biden. If they're asking the real questions, a real journalist would have said, um, Mr. President, now, I'm before the invasion. Why would Vladimir Putin invade Russia? I mean, I mean Ukraine, excuse me, Ukraine. Yeah, he invade Russia. Why would he invade the Ukraine? They can't answer that question because if they come up with the argument, well, he's concerned about NATO. Well, from a Russian perspective, one could make a, a plausible argument that they are concerned. I mean, look at this. Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, Poland, Romania, all former East Bloc. Well, those, uh, those first three were Soviet republics, so part of the Soviet Union, and the others are former East Bloc countries. All are NATO members now. But none of them have taken offensive action. The only one who's committed offensive action and acts of conflict against those states or Russia has been Russia against Estonia with cyber warfare against their banks and tried to destroy the banking sector in Estonia a few years ago. And the Russians have been particularly aggressive. It's not been NATO. But it is plausible to say that there are concerns about NATO advancing to the East. Now, Belarusia is never going to become a NATO member. They're a client of, of Moscow. They always have been. I mean, it's not even a real country. White Russia is not real. First off, the eastern third of it belongs to Poland. It was stolen by the collusion of the corrupt people named Stalin, Churchill, and Roosevelt at Yalta in 1945 when they decided the fates of tens of millions of people in Europe by moving the borders of Poland from the east to the west, stealing Silesia and Pomerania from Germany, places where Germans had lived for over a thousand years, ethnic Germans, and then transferring the eastern third of Poland, including Lvov, which the media, who know nothing about history, I, I, it's the cultural capital of Ukraine. Really? It's Polish. How is it the cultural capital of Ukraine? Lvov is a Polish city and was always a Polish city. Now there are no Poles there now because you kicked them all out. They had to move 200 miles to the west. But I mean, listening to these media who act like they know what they're talking about. Well, I'm I'm here reporting from Lvov or, you know, right now we're, we're Ukrainianizing everything. It's not Kiev, it's Kiev. It's not Kharkov, it's Kharkiv and, you know, whatever. And I'm sorry. I, I've only been reading these names for 50 years, you know, uh, and so the translation has always been Kharkov and Kiev and Lvov. But whatever the case is, the point is that it's just ludicrous to listen to some of the stuff that these people are putting out there. And did I answer the question or did I get away from it? <laughs> uh, well, yeah, so... Um... Putin's reason that he's afraid of NATO expansion. Oh, yeah, yeah, so it was, yeah. That's ludicrous. 
Well, in my view, it's ludicrous because first off, Ukraine doesn't have an application in to be a NATO member. That's number one. So what are you concerned about? Oh, they might do it? Well, donkeys might fall out of the sky. I'm concerned about that because they hit hard. They're pretty heavy. They might break my spine. But it ain't going to happen unless a freaking hurricane comes through here and lifts donkeys in the air and they fall on top of me. I mean, it's just it's just it's not plausible. And that's why a real genuine reporter in the White House would ask questions like that. What's his objective? What does he hope to accomplish? Now, I've laid the marker out there. I don't know what his intent is, but from a geopolitical, geostrategic standpoint, this makes sense in the following uh, following circumstances. If he wants to firm up his border and he also wants to ensure that the irredentist Russians in the east are able to rejoin Russia. Now, what he'll do is he'll move to the Dnieper River, the natural boundary, and annex everything in the eastern third of Ukraine. That makes sense. He already has the Crimea, and there was no consequences that when Obama was president and Biden was vice president. They did virtually nothing. He stole the most strategic. And I don't want to hear the nonsense. Well, it's all Russians. So what? It's still part of the Ukraine. South Tyrol is 70% ethnic German speakers from the former South Tyrol of Austria, but it was awarded to Italy at the end of the First World War I, and they're Italian citizens. You notice all the great skiers, except for Alberto Tomba from Italy, all have German names because they're Austrian, because they come from that region. So it's not legitimate, this whole thing with, with, the, with this, this nonsense. But my, I, with, as far as intent, my argument is that the only thing that makes sense, this either he wants to take the whole thing, but here's the thing. If his intent is to conquer Ukraine, that kind of runs counter to his point. I don't want NATO on my doorstep because now you've just moved to the West. Now you've put Poland and Romania on your borders along with Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia. Instead of having three NATO states on your border, now you've got five if you occupy and annex the Ukraine. So that doesn't make any sense. It seems more likely to me that he wants a, a compliant or pliant vassal state in Kiev that does what he tells them to do. And short of that, he's going to occupy and annex the eastern third of Ukraine because it makes natural geographic borders. I think that's part of what's going on here. It's, I mean, this is this stuff is just crazy what these people are saying on TV that know nothing about. It. And I listened to Alexander Vindman, a former foreign area officer in the U.S. Army who testified against Trump in this ludicrous um, show trial nonsense that was going on in Senate hearings last year. And this guy is an expert on Ukraine. And they offered him the defense minister position. I can only imagine that if he had become the minister of defense for the Ukraine, they would have lost already. This guy doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> yeah, that's some very interesting points. Um, how you described how Ukraine can be split into two and that will help Russia because now you have the buffer state. But a lot of people are also asking, why now? Why did Putin decide to invade Ukraine now and not back in 2015, 2014? I believe those are correct um, time yes. periods. Um, so so a lot, some of the theories being put forward is because of the Nord Stream pipeline because of Afghanistan's um, disastrous withdrawal, and also because the United States government frequently um, foiled Russian plots to find a pretext to invade Ukraine. And they're saying Putin got more and more frustrated, so he just decided, screw it, I'm going in. So what do you think of those reasons? Well, uh, those reasons play a role, but the last comment I don't I don't buy into because he didn't just go in. Uh, people seem to have forgotten that six weeks after Joe Biden became president, in 2021, Putin moved 70,000 Russian troops to the border with Ukraine nine months before his invasion. That's not a sudden, you know, um, knee-jerk reaction. That's a well-calculated, well-thought-out plan. He was testing the resolve of the United States. Why? And so people, you know, why didn't it happen in 2015 or 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019, 2020? Well, it's because Donald Trump was president. 
and he showed resolve despite the fake Russia collusion narrative that was cooked up by the Democratic National Committee and Hillary Clinton to tarnish the reputation of Donald Trump and the United States and cripple our foreign policy, which had a big impact on our foreign policy and our domestic policy. This senseless amount of time wasted fighting these allegations, which were totally fictitious and fraudulent. Trump was in a hotel having prostitutes urinate on him. I mean, this is not only is it ludicrous, it's just vile to make such an allegation with no evidence whatsoever. And they trumped it up. They, no pun intended. They made it all up. But Trump showed resolve despite that. Imagine if he'd had a free hand to actually talk to Russia and build relations with Russia. Now, I'm not a fan of Russia. I don't trust Russia, just like I don't trust a lot of other actors or China, but I'm also not someone that hates these places. I deal with them from a geostrategic standpoint and they have interest. Understand what Russia's interests are. They want to be recognized. They want to be a big player on the stage. They want to have, they want just like little Kim in North Korea, Kim Jong-un, he wants to have his ego stroke. That's part of what's going on here. So by marginalizing Russia, which is what the Democrats and what Obama and Biden have tried to do. They've simply made things worse. Trump showed strength. Deterrence works. There's a reason Reagan deployed the Pershing II missiles to Western Europe in 1982 and 1983, and a million Germans showed up to protest against it, even though it protected them with a nuclear umbrella. Oh, it's going to be nuclear war. Well, guess what? There was no nuclear war because strength and resolve worked. When you show weakness to a bully, they take advantage of it. Joe Biden is unbelievably weak, as is the entire foreign policy establishment and the Department of Defense, which is more concerned about understanding what the heck white rage is. Apparently, that's me right now ranting on this channel, whatever the heck white rage is, rather than talking about discipline, fire discipline, maneuver, communication, shoot, move, communicate. That's what you should be talking about. Yes, people should be treated equally. Everyone should have a fair opportunity in the military. And I would argue that our military for decades has done that. Otherwise, how do you explain that only 6.7% of the officers in the army are black, but 18% of our generals are black? Are they 300% brighter than all their white and Asian and Hispanic colleagues? No, it's beyond economy. Anyway, so it's, you know, it's just, it's just, utterly ludicrous what's going on here, these points that people are making. They really don't know what they're talking about, and I find it very frustrating. Yeah, apparently Trump told uh, Vladimir Putin, I don't know, back in 2016 or 2017, he told him, if you're going to invade Ukraine, I will bomb and destroy Moscow. This, yeah. I, I know if this is true, but that's apparently the report that, yeah. He, well, he I, I don't know if it's true either, but I was at the CPAC convention in Orlando this past week covering as a, an accredited journalist there. And uh, he spoke on Saturday night and he said, um, one day I'll, uh, I'm going to tell you what I said to him because I can't tell you right now, obviously, because it affects relations. And I think he was alluding to that that conversation or one like that you're talking about where, listen, you want to you play games? We'll blow you into the Stone Age. Don't do it. Uh, that's probably what Trump did. Trump is that kind of guy. He would say something like that. Even if it was reckless, he would say something like that. John F. Kennedy was also reckless, almost led us into a nuclear war, but it, it worked. It put us on the edge. But let's just run through the list of things that no one's paying attention to. I'm the only journalist that I've, I've seen. I'm waiting for someone else to make these connections. Joe Biden becomes president. Six weeks later, Putin moves 70,000 troops to the Ukraine. No response. And in fact, we reward him months later when Joe Biden's popularity rating falls below 30% and we have record numbers of people testing positive for Rona and we have record numbers of Americans dying from Rona and he has hyperinflation. The government's lying at 7%. It's more like 48% in the past year or higher. And one failure after another, his, 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 his uh, jobs, his patronage scheme, this build back better nonsense for infrastructure, which is all lies about our infrastructure, that fails. He fails to disrupt American voting system and destroy it so that they have permanent political class. All this is failing. And what do we have happening? Distraction. This is the tail wagging the dog. Ukraine, look, look at Russia. I'm going to send troops to Poland, Estonia, to Romania. Oh, that really helps, Joe. Oh, but you know what? 
he can still have the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. We've greenlighted that. We've shut down the Keystone XL pipeline in America, costing us jobs, destroying our energy sector, harming Americans because we're concerned about carbon dioxide. But apparently the carbon dioxide that's produced from digging up oil in Russia, putting it on boats, steaming it across on the most polluting engines on the planet, cargo ships to the United States, to refineries, that produces less carbon dioxide than simply digging out of the ground, putting a gravity flow pipeline, letting it flow from the oil sands in Canada down to Louisiana, Texas. These people are just absolutely ridiculous. So, so 70,000 troops go there. And he rewards him. He doesn't punish him until he wants to start raising the temperature, causing problems. Myanmar, February 1st, 2021, days after Biden becomes president, after Trump is gone, military junta overthrows a democratic elected government. What's the response from the U.S.? Nothing, nothing. Sudan, coup, December or November of 2021. No response from them. Coup. Three coups in West Africa, attempted assassination of the first Arab ever to be elected to be the president of Niger. No response from the White House. There's a pattern here. It's weakness. It's failure. It's a lack of resolve by the European Union, by the United States. When those two actors don't act, the world falls apart. Now, some people might go, well, you're pretty arrogant there, Chris. You had a very American-centric view. Hey, it's the truth. If you don't like it, then you're not, you're not living in the real world. When the United States acts or doesn't act, it affects the entire planet. So, for instance, when I was in the Gulf War in 1991, I was kind of upset. I was young and idealistic. I'm a conservative, political conservative, but, but not very far to the right, close to the center. And I was angry. Why am I here in the desert? Not that I was in the desert. I'm a soldier. I'm okay with that. I've already been enlisted, been a non-commissioned officer. Now I'm a lieutenant. But I'm like, why are we here defending Kuwait? These people aren't Democrats. President Bush is mentioning among the many dozen reasons why we're here. It's to restore democracy. There was no democracy in Kuwait. It was run by rich, elite, arrogant racists who treated their third country nationals as if they were dirt and in chattel slaves. So it's not about democracy. But while I'm sitting there getting rained on and, and you know prepping for battle and then having fought the battle and against the Iraqis, and I'm still there trapped afterwards for weeks and months afterwards before I get out of there. I came to the realization I had an epiphany. Whether we like it or not, cheap, affordable access to energy is what makes the modern world function. Without it, you wouldn't have lights right now. We wouldn't be doing the stream. We wouldn't get food. I wouldn't have this, you know, uh, caffeine and sugar addicting thing right here from uh, Starbucks. It would be possible. We'd be living in caves, burning kindling and firewood, and we'd be much smaller population subject to bubonic plague and typhus and all these other things that would wipe us out. It would be a tough, brutal existence. But cheap access to energies matters. Now, the leftists in America said, well, it's because the Americans just want the oil in the Middle East. Uh, we did import a lot of oil from the Middle East at that time, but we weren't getting much of it from Iraq. We were getting it from Kuwait, Saudi Arabia. And, and so the bottom line is this. When the oil supply was threatened from the Persian Gulf, or Iranian Gulf, if you're from Tehran, when that was threatened in 1991, it affected the whole world. But who it really had an impact on was Europe and Japan. Without that oil, Japan would freeze and shut down overnight at that time. And my epiphany was, you know what? What if it is about oil? So what? Because when Americans pay twice as much for fuel like we're doing today, as opposed to January of last year, I'm paying $3.89 a gallon for gasoline. It was $1.69 when Trump left office. Funny that. But when we pay that, we have less money to buy bananas or cocoa or, you know, African headrest or, you know, or, or objects of art or take vacation or go on safari or go to Latin America, the Caribbean. And Europeans have less money because they're more affluent. When we have less money, we stop buying those things. And who does that affect? The informal traders. 
the restaurateurs, the operators, the tour guides, all these places, the people that manufacture cocoa in Ivory Coast, the people that manufacture bananas in every people that manufacture rice in Pakistan. When people have less disposable income, it affects everyone. And you know what? That doesn't help anybody out. So ensuring that rogue actors do not affect the world's energy supply is a strategic option. And that's the epiphany I had. And so anyway, that's just kind of a long soliloquy. I hope that was helpful. <laughs> no, that's very interesting. But but back to Ukraine, Chris. So I know you you mentioned that you believe there will be a buffer state, that that's what Russia is aiming for. It's, it's a possibility. I think the original goal was a vassal client state that was pliant and compliant. But now I think it, they may just be looking for the buffer state. So do you think there's, there's um, no real chance that Russia will invade Moldova, which is not a member oh, of Oh, I, I didn't say that. The transdenister is there, and there's, there's all kinds of Russian ex- irredentists there as well. Didn't say that. But Moldova is not, not a NATO member. Uh, they may be an aspirant, but they're never going to be part of it. I mean, Moldova is the only thing Moldova is known for is the uh, the uh, the uh, export enslavement of young women as sex slaves around the world, which yeah, is really drugs. tragic. And drugs. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but that's really tragic. But Moldova has nothing. But yeah, that, that's not beyond their own possibility. Yeah, exactly. But but then that that would that would be on the basis and assumption that they would go for all of Ukraine. So and, and, and if they did go for all of Ukraine, it would make more sense that they would do that because they already have a border with Romania and either want a client state there or they want to take control of it so that they have firmed up borders. But whatever's going on here, it was, in my view, entirely preventable, entirely preventable. This is this is a consequence of weak foreign policy in the capitals of Berlin, London, Washington, D.C., Moscow, for that matter, as well. And this is wholly unnecessary. The world is distracted by this. This, this event that's happened for over two years that came out of a place in the East, which we dare not mention, which as we've discovered and many of us have known all along, has been used politically to create something that wasn't what it was. And I'll just leave it at that so nobody gets in trouble on platforms. <laughs> but um, yeah, I'm, I'm curious to hear from you. What happens if Russia by accident shoots a rocket to a neighboring NATO country? Would, would that put them in a position where they have to um, um, exercise? I don't. I can't believe that Article Four. That Article have, Five. Article Five. Would that put them in a position to do that? Technically, yes, but I think that reason would prevail. I mean, if 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 there's overflight of Estonia by Russian jets or overflight of Eastern Poland by Russian jets, I don't think that anyone's rash enough. Although it's possible that they're going to start a war between NATO and Russia. Now, if Russia starts flying, you know, it's 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 uh, Tupolev bombers across the border and pummeling Polish cities. That's a different story. If Russian troops, you know, other than a couple reconnaissance guys, somebody out on exercise in force cross the border into Estonia, that's a different story. If Russia uses its cyber warfare to undermine the banking system of Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, or Poland, then that's a different story. So, yeah, I, I I think we have to take that as it comes. Because I, you know, this is this is this is all the stakes are in play here. I mean, this is what I said. You know, when Joe Biden was ratcheting up the tension against Russia, I mean, you're not playing with Afghanistan, a Stone Age state where people destroy statues because it offends their perverted understanding of Islam. Islam doesn't demand that you destroy 1,400 year old stone carvings and mountains of the Buddha. That's not idolatry. That's stupid. That's not what Islam calls for, but that's what the Taliban did. And the world watched it and they didn't say anything, didn't do anything. No, this is, this is, this is not Afghanistan. This is not Iraq, a state that desired to be a nuclear power, but wasn't yet. This isn't even Iran, which is on the verge of nuclear power, but can still be taken out. 
This is a country with 10,000 nuclear warheads on intercontinental ballistic missiles and sea launch ballistic missiles, which are pointing at my house. We're talking about the end of days here. This is not a game that should be entrusted to the likes of a demented, doddering fool whose greatest accomplishment in life is the 1994 crime bill, which incarcerated black men automatically for multiple drug offenses. That's his claim to fame. He disavows it, but that's the only piece of legislation in 38 years in the Senate that he ever authored. Can you imagine 38 years in the august senior body of a legislature, and he has his name on one piece of legislation? What was Joe doing for 38 years other than lying? When he ran for president in 1988, he was caught appropriating and using Neil Kinnock from the UK, the Labour Party leader. He used his speech verbatim, and that's why he withdrew in 1988 from the presidential election. We, he, because, because he got caught being a liar. By the way, he was kicked out of a college class for plagiarizing on his exams and his papers. The guy is a known pathological liar, a serial cheat, and has been for decades. The fact that he's president is beyond embarrassing, not just to me as an American, but to the citizens of the world. This is insane. The fact, you know, I, I joke about it, but I worry that he's going to wake up middle of the night and he thinks the alarm's going off. He's going to reach over. That was easy. And push the button and we're going to have a nuclear war. Obviously, it's not that simple, but you get my point there, Donald. Listen, um, this is this is this is frightening if you think about it. Now, people aren't thinking about it because they're all virtuous. Like, I stand with Ukraine. Let me paint some of the yellow and blue flag in here. We're, let's raise money for the Ukraine. Oh, Nancy Pelosi with a Ukraine-US flag lapel pin. Where was that three months ago, Nancy? Where was that when you could have been sending javelins and stingers and armored personnel carriers and ammunition? Now, we're going to give them aid. Oh, now we have to pay for Joe Biden's policy failures. They want $32 billion, $10 billion for the Ukraine. They've already given them money. There may not be a Ukraine by the time the money is approved by Congress. This is this is insanity of the highest order. These are people who have the fate of billions of people in their hand, and they don't deserve to have the fate of an ice cream cone in their hand. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so why do you think of South Africa's decision to abstain from voting to condemn the Ukraine invasion and the UN? Oh, boy, let's just run through the list. Uh, there are 13 African states that abstain. Every one of them has a history of relations with the East Bloc, from Algeria to Senegal, which that one surprised me the most, except for South Sudan, which didn't exist. It was part of Sudan, but that one's annoying. But South Africa's abstention is an obvious nod to their colonial masters. Ooh, that's going to upset a lot of black nationalists in South Africa. Yeah, your colonial masters, the people you turned to during the liberation struggle, East Germans, Soviet Union, China. You're paying back the debt you owe them or you perceive you owe them for supporting you during the liberation struggle. This is a no-brainer. Now, there's, there's legitimate arguments to say that Ukraine is not entirely innocent in here. They're also doing things that are reprehensible and also things that violate the law. I mean, for instance, you see the Ukrainian government endlessly putting pictures up of dead Russian soldiers, of, of interrogating Russians. Those likely violate Geneva Conventions against uh, humanity and treatment of, of enemy combatants. And that's that's despicable. They're doing it for effect, but they should be, if in fact, if Ukraine survives, the people responsible for that should be should be charged. And, and, and if they're guilty, be convicted because that is not the norm. So there's, there's, there's problems on both sides, but, but this is a no-brainer. No matter what the difference is between Ukraine and Russia, no matter what was going on in the Donbass, that's not even the excuse. That's not even the pretext. We're invading because people are being killed in the Donbass. They didn't even make that as a pretext. 
That's not even the reason. If they'd evaded 2014 after taking the Crimea, then then would and they did. They sent Russians in in you know in fake uniforms. Anyway, but if they had actually, if this was the reason they massed an attack because people were being subjugated to Donbass, that would have been a pretext. At least the Nazis tried that. Oh, Germans are being persecuted across the border in Poland. We've got to go across and save them. That wasn't even the reason for it. So it's just, you know, I. <laughs> The whole thing is so frustrating here. It's a dangerous situation and it really, it needs adults. And there aren't many adults in the room, whether they're in the press, academia, or in government. Do you think Russia has some sort of financial interest in South Africa? That's why the South African government is so unwilling to condemn them. So specifically, do you know of any financial interest that they have in South Africa? Well, the Russian interest in South Africa was most pronounced when Jacob Zuma was president. He had this lunatic idea that the South Africans are going to spend 70 US, 70 billion US to buy nuclear reactors. When South Africa has its own graphite-based reactor, which is perfectly commercially viable, and they could sell to other people. So why are you buying from Ross Adam, the Russian atomic agency? This is all because you know Zuma was seeing dollar signs of money going in his pocket from the graph, just like the arms deal. Uh, so since then, I'm not aware of any major transactions between them. To me, it's more just a historical thing. And again, what I was getting at was it's a no-brainer. This is easy to condemn this. There's no justification for the invasion whatsoever. And so the fact that South Africa failed to do it along with China and North, well, North Korea actually voted against it, I should say, but five countries voted against it. They're not surprising. North Korea and uh, Belarus, Russia, you know, not surprising, Cuba, not surprising they vote against it. But the 34, 35 countries who abstain should be ashamed of themselves. And the South African governor of the ANC should be ashamed of themselves. They are criticizing Israel, calling it an apartheid state for exercising the rule of law because they don't like its politics, but they've abstained from voting to condemn. By the way, and there's no cost to this, Donald. I mean, there's nothing in the General Assembly has any application. You can condemn Russia, but it means nothing. There's nothing to hold them. Only the Security Council can pass resolutions that have binding results. Not that Russia would adhere to it, but the point is that this wasn't a Security Council because Russia and China refused to vote for it. So it went to the General Assembly and then we just want to condemn the invasion. There's nothing wrong with that. South Africa loses nothing by taking the correct moral stand, but we've seen the South African government repeatedly fail to take the moral stand, whether it's it's the treatment of minorities in South Africa, coloreds, Indians, whites, or even black South Africans, or it is the ANC's intentional effort to kowtow to their masters in Beijing by denying the Dalai Lama a visa to attend a World Racism Conference. I mean, how cool is the Dalai Lama? How could you have any objection? He emphatically supported the liberation struggle in South Africa for decades. He hosted South Africans. He helped them. He encouraged them. He gave them succor and refuge. And they betray him because their overlords in Beijing don't want the Dalai Lama having a platform at a racism conference. And then for Desmond Tutu's 80th birthday, they denied him another visa. This is who they are. They are hardcore Marxist state control and they don't care about the people of South Africa, unless you're a cadre. 59 million South Africans, only 500,000 matters to the ANC, and that's who they're there for. So it's our turn to eat. Be damned with the rest of you. Yeah, it's peculiar to me because at the, at the end of the day, you can be pro-Russia, but you can still condemn the invasion. It's two separate issues. Exactly. So, yeah. It's, I mean, there's, you, you just you just hit the nail on the head. I mean, I, I talked for three minutes and you, you, in three seconds, you said exactly what needed to be said. You could support Russia and condemn the invasion. That's there's there, there's no cognitive dissonance there. What Russia did was wrong, no matter how you look at it. I mean, and you have all these people running around who are pro-Russia or trying to, to, to say it was legit. It's not legitimate. Now, warfare is a legitimate form of political discourse, but that's after you've exhausted all options. What option did Russia exhaust that led to war? 
did what negotiations did they have with Zelensky? What what were their grievances? What did they want? Was it debt? Was it they wanted him to do something for them? We don't know. We don't know because they didn't resort to that. They resorted to warfare. And why to resort to warfare? And here's the question. We actually have people in America on the political left blaming Donald Trump for the war. Well, Donald Trump, he's giving aid and comfort. He said Putin's strategy is brilliant. Oh, I'm sure Putin's in the in the Kremlin going, oh, hey, wait, uh, let's uh, don't cross the, the, the Dnieper River yet. We're waiting for Donald Trump to make a public statement so we get lots of support here in Russia. Oh, Trump just said I'm a genius. OK, now cross the Dnieper. What a moronic statement from Hillary Clinton. It was her administration and her as Secretary of State who sold 80 percent of U.S. uranium to Russian companies. They own our uranium now. We have to buy it from Russians and it comes out of our soil. How stupid is that? That is what we get. The political left trying to blame Donald Trump. But what didn't happen for four years when he was president? Russia didn't invade the Donbass. They didn't invade Ukraine. What also happened for four years, despite all the lies about U.S. foreign policy and, oh, respect for the U.S. has fallen? No. Fear and respect were risen. What also didn't happen is Kim Jong-un didn't fire ballistic missiles over the Sea of Japan and violate Japan's airspace, which is an act of war, by the way, which Japan would have been right to respond in full force and bomb the snot on North Korea, but they showed restraint. That didn't happen after Trump stroked little Kim's ego and put him as a player on the world stage. Now, that doesn't mean Korea became a land of milk and honey. It just means that Trump, as a businessman who gets things done, understood what was going on here. Now, no one else does. What has happened since Biden has become president? North Korea is firing intermediate-range nuclear missiles over the Sea of Japan and over Japanese airspace again, dozens of times in the last few months, because Biden is weak and feckless. And so is sad, and it breaks my heart to say this, our U.S. military leadership is the same. Afghanistan. I didn't even throw that in there. I talked about I talked about Myanmar earlier. I talked about, about coups in Africa. I talked about Ukraine. I talked about Japan, uh, North Korea. I didn't even mention the debacle in Afghanistan. By the way, Afghanistan, Joe Biden lied about the whole thing. Afghanistan, the war had ended 13 months before he became president. We hadn't had a combat casually in Afghanistan in 13 months. And he's going on about, well, Americans are tired of the war. What war, Joe? There's a war in Afghanistan, but it isn't with American troops. We have 5,000 troops there, most of who are there to train foreign forces, and a handful of them are there as a special reaction force to protect our troops in case they come under assault. Uh, but they did limited missions. So we weren't in a war. That's a lie. Now, the truth of the matter is Americans are tired of spending billions of dollars to rebuild Afghanistan. That's true. But you don't do this nonsense and just abandon Afghanistan like that. And the horrors of that, I mean, watching women being executed, shot in the head on the streets because they're women. I mean, this is heartbreaking. And this is Joe Biden. These people don't care about human beings. And that's what's going on in the Ukraine. They don't care. They show their weakness. And this is what happens. And they go to their dinners and they throw their parties and they give their appearances on CNN, MSNBC and Fox News. And they stroke their egos and they move in their elite circles and all the rest of us pay. Double the price for fuel, double the price for food, double the price for our rent, interest rates going up, jobs disappearing, livelihoods gone. It's insane. It's insane. So, Chris, a lot of people are saying Xi Jinping is looking at the Ukraine. And if he sees weakness, which he obviously is seeing, he might think, OK, I can take Taiwan. What, what do you think are the chances of that? Well, when the events of November occurred that day and unfolded in the month of November, and I don't want to get your channel in trouble, so I won't describe it in any other fashion because of the, the fascist nature of this platform. When those events unfolded, I said right then, Taiwan is in moral jeopardy, mortal jeopardy. Yeah, they're, more, they're not moral, mortal jeopardy. Taiwan is at risk. I'm not at all convinced that this president has the cojones and the wherewithal 
to provide the security umbrella that we've promised to the Taiwanese ever since James Earl Carter abandoned them and recognized Beijing as the legitimate government of China in 1979. Uh, my concern for Taiwan has been paramount since then. Taiwan has been under, under threat. The Chinese People's Liberation Army has flown and violated the airspace on now a near daily basis. They have moved maneuvers into the territorial waters, not the economic exclusion zone, the territorial waters within 12 miles of Taiwan's shoreline. They are being provocative and they've also increased their ships and now have over 500 capital ships approaching 600 in their Navy, while the U.S. is down to under 400. And that's globally, whereas China's are all concentrated in East Asia. Ours are around the globe for the most part. So we're, 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 but now our ships are superior. Our Navy is far better. Our aircraft are much better. Our, our ballistic missiles are much better launched from ships and from submarines. But at some point, numbers matter. Just look at Korea in 1950. <laughs> when the Marines and the Army got to Chosin Reservoir, they were outnumbered 10 to 1. And it's a miracle that anybody survived when the Chinese hit them at the Chosin Reservoir. Numbers eventually matter. The Iranians were able to stop the Iraqis simply because they just sent, you know, people through minefields on foot to blow mines up. They didn't even bother to use minesweepers. That's how many soldiers they sacrificed because they had sheer numbers in Iran versus the Iraqis. So yeah, um, Taiwan is in mortal jeopardy and has been. And I don't know that we have their back. I'm, I'm actually terrified. If China attacks or occupies Taiwan, the entire geopolitical situation in the world has changed. A lot of people are going around. I saw a Washington Post article. Well, well, what happened here in the Ukraine represents a change in history, a major change. Maybe, maybe not. I mean, it didn't happen in Georgia. It didn't happen in Nagorno-Karabakh, Azerbaijan, uh, South Ossetia, all these conflicts, which I've followed for ages. Uh, Armenia, no one's, that didn't change the calculus. We all just continued on. And it could be the same thing with Ukraine. But Taiwan, that's a whole other ball of wax. And that's pretty frightening. I don't know that they're going to move, but they have been making enough strategic signals and doing operations to make me very nervous since Joe Biden became president. By the way, none of this was happening when Donald Trump was president. There were no overflights of Taiwanese airspace by uh, bombers, a whole flight of bombers, no, not jet fighters. Oh, we, we flew in your airspace, mistake. Sorry, we'll go. No, bomber aircraft flying from China directly towards Taiwan invading their airspace. That is nothing but a direct threat. And what does Joe Biden do? Not a whole lot. Where's the seventh fleet? What's their role in this? You know, it's, it's, it's a very frightening prospect. And, and, you know, for all his bombastic and his crass and his bullying and his impolite, impolitic comments, Donald Trump seemed to have gotten global security better than any of these idiots that are running our country now or under Obama. The world fell apart under Obama. One conflict after another. The guy started more wars than George Bush, but got a peace prize. Give me a break. Anyway, there you go. Does, does the United States have an agreement with Taiwan that they have to come to their aid in the event of a Chinese invasion? We do have an agreement with Taiwan. Uh, I'm not a subject matter expert on it. I've not paid enough attention over the years. It's not, it's not, a, it's not an alliance in the, in the, in the, in the, in the the description you're sort of indicating, but we do have obligations to Taiwan. But interesting enough, you know, we have Taiwanese officers who come to the U.S. Army War College, but because of our inability or unwillingness to recognize Taiwan in the fashion that it is, they must wear business suits. The rest of us wear uniforms, the War College, including people from all over Africa, from all over Eastern Europe, all around the world, Latin America, we all wear uniforms every day. But the Taiwanese guy wears a business suit and is known as Mr., even though he's a colonel. <laughs> Yeah, that's a strange. Why why doesn't the United States just recognize Taiwan, seeing as their relationship with China is so bad at the moment anyway? It's like, what do you have to lose? 
well actually that you know um that's a very dangerous proposition you know the chinese are very egocentric they're very um attached to the concept that they're the true rulers of the chinese communist party of china and any recognition to move to to change the diplomatic status of Taiwan is going to be very antagonistic. And I think we're just kind of stuck where we're at now because decisions made in the 1970s. Uh, but that doesn't mean we can't increase uh, our obligations so far as mutual defense to Taiwan. That would be antagonistic towards China. But dip, full diplomatic recognition or recognize them as the true heirs, the Kuomintang uh, of, of China would really be over, over over the edge and that would really cause problems. I think the smartest thing now is that the US Navy should be doing bilateral exercises with the Taiwanese frequently. We should be doing joint patrols to South China Seas with the Taiwanese to send a clear political message. Uh, and that shows restraint, but also shows resolve and strength. But we're not doing that, at least not publicly. And if we're doing it publicly, it should be all over the news. So that everybody knows about it. TikTok videos of U.S. warships and Taiwanese sailing the South China Seas and the Spratleys. <gasps> oh, that's what we should be doing. But uh, I'm not president. Not today, anyway. Yeah, no, definitely. And yeah, Chris, I see our time is running out. Thank you so much. Um, I want to give you one opportunity to add plug or say anything that you want to perhaps plug your latest YouTube channel before the mysterious overlords take it down again. <laughs> Well, Donald, thank you for that so much. Yeah, if you want to catch my content, you can find me on YouTube. Look up Chris White, W-Y-A-T-T, -T, or you can look up Chris White Africa. That's the name of the channel, actually. But most people just look for Chris White. You can find me. Uh, I'm way down from what was a skyrocketing channel a couple of years ago uh, with a restart of the channel. There's a lot of stuff going on preventing people from seeing my videos, but I continue nonetheless. I'm on all the major platforms. Uh, you can find me on Odyssey and Rumble where almost nobody watches it. <laughs> and then you can also find my articles, my opinion pieces, and and uh, analysis on morningshot.co.za. That's uh, Roman Kabanek's uh, program or his channel. You can find articles I've written. I just wrote an article about the CPAC convention. I've written several about South Africa's elections and many other things. You can find my off my articles on there. I'm a rather prolific writer. I have something on my videos. If you find my channel, if you go below the description, you'll see in there a link to something called Linktree. Linktree is an aggregator of social media links. And if you click on that Linktree for Indaba Africa, which is my business, then you will go and you'll find my my LinkedIn profile, my Twitter, my Gab, my Parler, all of that stuff, my Facebook pages, everything, YouTube, Odyssey, all of that aggregated in one place. And my merch store, if you want to buy crap, <laughs> if you want to buy crap. Anyway, so it's all there. So I encourage you to go check that out. Now, final words I'd like to say, Donald, is that Ukraine, everyone needs to be very careful here. For a week, I refused to show any videos coming out of Ukraine because I couldn't prove the provenance, the origin of these videos. There is a real hazard here, and we saw this in the news networks of people showing footage, it's file footage or events that occurred over the last eight years and attributing to events unfolding right now. So for a week, I kept that back until we saw better coverage and, and more videos coming out. Now, I finally yesterday released a video in which I did analysis of footage purportedly from Ukraine. Now, I refuted some of that footage. In fact, there's one in uh, Koshin, in which, or Koshin, yeah, where it's purportedly Ukrainian troops fleeing and leaving so the Russians can take over the town. The problem with that is that uh, you can't see the flags that are flying on their antennas very clearly. They're whipping around, but they appear to have white on them. Ukrainian flag is yellow and blue. Uh, and these are also looked to be Russian vehicles. Of course, it's complicated because Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union. They have a lot of the same vehicles, but it is, appears to me more likely these are Russians occupying the town and not Ukrainians fleeing. So I put a disclaimer in there, put a little sign up. So you got to be careful. Uh, nobody's blameless in this, although Ukrainians are clearly victims and civilians are clearly victims here. And frankly, it appears as if a lot of Russian conscripts are victims too. I don't even know that they were invading Russia, a lot of them. 
apparently. But be careful about what you listen to and who you listen to and make a decision for yourself. Don't get excited. Someone sent me a video of a man being crucified in the Donbass and purported it was Ukrainian troops crucifying a Russian separatist, nailing him to a cross and hanging him up in the dark hours when the invasion took place. That video is from six years ago, to my knowledge. But it got people incensed and started all kinds of stuff. There's a lot of that going on. So you need to be a critical thinker when it comes to Ukraine on both sides. This is a horrific situation. Never should have happened, um, but it's happened. And all the virtue signaling in the world is not going to arm Ukrainians and not going to train them how to use new equipment that just arrived. The Ukrainians are going to have to hold on for themselves or someone's going to have to convince Putin that he's achieved his goals. It's time to back off. It doesn't appear that that's the case. And I don't expect that'll be the case until at least 30 days into it. And then maybe he'll reevaluate. So just be patient, hang in there and think for yourself. Don't let the Daily Maverick, don't let News 24, don't let the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Paris Match, the Frankfurt Allgemeine, the Guardian, don't let them make your decisions for you. Be a critical thinker because it's time for calm, rational minds to adjudicate and analyze what's going on here. And that's at all levels. Don't be hoodwinked by the media because they are trying to make money, which is fine making money. But when you're dishonest making money, that's morally reprehensible. And I think they're being dishonest willfully in many cases. Everyone's all in for the Ukraine, ignoring Ukraine's violations and misdeeds. That doesn't make me pro-Russia. It doesn't make me anti-Ukraine. just makes me an honest analyst. And that's where I'm at. Thanks a lot, Donald. It's a pleasure to be back in your program. Good luck with your success. Thank you, Chris. And yeah, definitely it's interesting times. It's difficult to know what's true and not. And yeah, it's scary. But Chris, yeah, it's always great to have you on. Your attention to detail and your knowledge is incredible. And to our viewers, uh, please consider liking this video, sharing it as widely as possible and subscribing to our channel. My name is Donald and you've been watching Worldview.